0: Hey everyone and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news, stories and analysis every week. I'm Jess Farmery and with me today I've got Hugh and Jess from Somex and live from Cambridge, Dr Mahunthin Talai, a consultant, chess physician and the co-founder and CEO of Curate. Um, Curate was founded in 2018 based in Cambridge. They're a medical data analytics company working to transform outcomes for people with complex diseases. Welcome everyone, um, how's everyone's week been?
1: Martin Mahunton here, mine's been a bit chaotic and busy, but that's a normal week in the life of a startup.
2: And the life of a doctor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and the life of a doctor, yeah, uh, both together.
3: Good, thanks Jess. Uh, yeah, it's been a busy one, uh, looking forward to the weekend, but overall really productive.
2: Yeah, I've got to say at almost we spent an inordinate amount of time talking about Barbie, much like everybody else it seems in the world, um, and we even had a Barbie headline game this morning, trying to figure out which ones were true and false to celebrate Belle's birthday, which was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, so it's always nice to be able to bring together Barbie and Health Tech. Uh, so well done on that, Jess. It was a highlight of the week for sure.
0: Yeah, that was absolutely a collaboration no one expected, the Barbie Health Tech um, collaboration. But okay, brilliant. So I think let's just dive straight into our stories because we've got lots to talk about this week. So we will start strong with the best of the bunch, an article from Business Weekly, which is breaking the news of a landmark collaboration between Curate and AstraZeneca. Um, which is allowing AstraZeneca to use Curate's platform and AI technology to conduct research across a range of complex lung diseases, leveraging imaging data analytics and sophisticated AI models to better understand how patients with rare and complex lung diseases could respond to novel drugs. So, and then you must be super proud of this. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how the deal came about and how the AstraZeneca researchers will be deploying Curate's technology?
1: Yeah, uh, unbelievably proud. So, Curate's been going for you know four or so years and we have a number of pharma clients uh, we worked with astrazeneca last year on a pilot project looking at a disease called lung fibrosis we effectively um, took some data from them took some images we have um, fancy ai on our platform that structures the data together and we showed them some signals as to how diseases like like ipf lung fibrosis might um, change over time and as part of that they got really interested and we've been in discussion with them for many many months um, working with uh, big pharma like any big company can be um, complicated um, and we've had a, a collaboration deal on the table for some time and we finally signed it off and announced it so it's a three-year collaboration uh, for them to use our technology um, as they develop drugs across a range of diseases which um, is, a, is a massive um, validation step for us and the entire team and what we've been building.
0: Um, can we get um, a little bit into the technicalities of it and can you explain to us exactly how they're going to be using the technology?
1: Yeah, so we um, structure healthcare data, we work with hospitals across the UK and elsewhere to build models that, that work out whether diseases are getting worse or not. So one of the difficult things in, in trials for, let's take IPF, a fibrosis disease, is it's quite difficult sometimes for a pharma company like AstraZeneca to work out if the drug's working or not. They do a study every year and they collect lots of touch points, images, scans, data points, and at the end of it, they have to decide, well, is this drug working and should we... Spend more money on the drug, or should we shelve it? The way our ii works, and we have some very sophisticated image models. One of the sets of models takes scans of the lungs from before the drug and after the drug, and builds these anatomical models through deep learning, really to work out how that disease has changed over time. And we published some um, some abstracts and papers recently with AstraZeneca and others, showing that we have models that we believe are better than anyone else's to understand whether IPF is getting worse or not. So AstraZeneca, as they work on IPF and other diseases, will use. this technology really to try and understand whether the drugs they're developing are any good um, and if they are good how good are they and we're going to be supporting them across a range of different diseases over the next three years
0: and is this the first time that a major pharmaceutical company has used a technology like this
1: it is. Yeah. There are lots of older types of technology to do this. Um, about four months ago, we worked with a company called Galapagos and showed for the first time that you could use deep learning in a live clinical trial to differentiate between drug and placebo. And that's, what's got a lot of companies excited and what we're doing, but this is the first time a big, uh, top pharma company is going to start to use this technology. So it's exciting for them. Uh, and obviously it's hugely exciting for us.
0: And do you have any idea how this, um, collaboration is going to evolve over the course of
1: the three years? Um, I don't. I uh, I joke with um, colleagues in lots of companies, including AstraZeneca, about how big this is going to get. And um, I had coffee with someone the other day and, and um, I joked that it would get so big. And I, I meant to say that AstraZeneca would buy Curate. I actually said that in three years, <laughs> Curate will buy AstraZeneca. It just, never it say just never. It could happen. <laughs> uh, and they looked to me as if I was crazy and there was a little laugh. So I don't think it'll get that big, but it should get very big, I hope.
0: No, I think dream big. Um, dream big. Yeah.
1: Dream us buying people, not people buying exactly. us,
0: definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, congratulations again.
3: Thanks. But yeah, I would love to chat about sort of what this means sort of practically. I mean, obviously we'll talk about, you know, uh evolving health conditions and health patterns uh, later on the pod, but uh, what does this mean for getting drugs to market? Is it going to is it going to speed up the process? Is it uh, how is yeah. it going to make it much easier? Yeah. Uh,
1: speed it up. Uh so our technology can speed up things. So here's a here's a simple example. When you do one of these lung studies, and all of these companies do this, you have to decide whether a patient's suitable for a study or not. So you take scans and data, and it might take you a few weeks to figure this out. We can now do this in hours. We can use AI assistants and radiologists and other specialists and really quickly decide if someone goes into a study or not, even before we do the fancy AI. So if we can speed up inclusion and we can speed up studies, then we can speed up those touch points in a pharma company. So if you're running a study, you may make a a smarter decision sooner so not only is the decision better drug works or not but if you can make it faster and cheaper you might be able to get drugs through the approval process even faster so this kind of technology should not only help get the best drugs out but actually speed up getting drugs to market
3: jessa you had
1: a question it is about Barbie. I think I was going to say my wife and daughter went to see Barbie yesterday. I was really tempted, but sadly I couldn't make it. Um, apparently, it was amazing. At well, they said it was amazing.
2: Uh, I mean, you read my mind. <laughs> I was actually going to ask what are the implications for Barbie with this new partnership, but um...
1: yeah, I mean, I, I within the cinema, I did think about could could we use deep learning for Barbie? I mean, I don't know. Maybe Barbie too. Maybe.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's some real potential there. And I definitely think that's a partnership that you need to explore more seriously. Um, but, but my question was around, I guess, your perspectives on um, obviously working with pharma. You are an NHS clinician. And how innovators pharma and the NHS working together, like how do we do that successfully? Because I, I know that there's there's often a lot of mistrust, particularly around pharma, and for the NHS to work directly with them and, and even for innovators to sometimes be working with them and, and vice versa. And so how do, you, how do you think, how can we do that in a productive way that makes everyone feel like they're getting value? Um, and I guess build that trust to recognize that actually everyone is all pushing in the same direction and ultimately wanting to achieve the same things for people's health outcomes.
1: I think that's a really important question because we all want the same thing. As a doctor, I want the best drugs to my patients. If I was in pharma or a tech company like Curate, I'd want the same thing. But there is always this mistrust. And part of the reason why we think we've been successful recently in Curate is we were founded by doctors and scientists, but we have this idea of, you know, we're a trusted organization. We're working with the University of Birmingham and and they um, designate us as a trusted research organization. So people trust us implicitly. So I think it's all about trust and... As a doctor in a hospital, if I see big bad pharma coming to me with lots of money, there is that wariness of why do they want to take me out for dinner and why do they want to fly me to a conference? And I'm very happy to go to a conference, but what do they get? So um, I think it's about finding these internal champions, small startups like us that people trust. If you can kind of get in there and say, well, I'll work with you as a hospital, I'll work with you as a farmer and we'll bring you together, trust us. I think it's all about, it's just, a, I think it's like anything else. It's just about building relationships, but the NHS is so massive and unwieldy that we don't have those yet, yeah, those kind of key figureheads to go in there and build those relationships.
2: Yeah, and I think that's such an you know important point because we, you know, we've got, health systems, not just in the UK, but around the world that are, we say this all the time, they're on their knees, they're struggling. People are increasingly experiencing comorbidities, chronic conditions. And, you know, surely by being able to better prescribe medication to the right people um, in the right way, or even create medicines that are maybe more targeted and and more accessible, that has a benefit to a health system. And I guess the, the challenging thing is that You know, some of that will be felt in the shorter term, but actually a lot of that impact is going to take a longer time to be realized. Um, And so I can imagine that it might be difficult to kind of almost sell that dream in order to, you know, build that trust to say, just really stick with us because, you know, in three, five, 10 years time, you will be able to reap the benefits if we can just, you know, work together now in this particular way. But I think that it's definitely something that, you know, healthcare does need to pull together to solve some of these problems. And I don't think we can do them in silos. And I think this is a great example of a partnership that is being able to to bring multiple players and stakeholders together who, as we keep saying, are all pushing in the same direction um, and ultimately being able to make a
1: difference. Totally. And then briefly, we're so lucky in the UK because the NHS, although it's massive and unwieldy, is one organisation. It's not as though there are lots of different bits in the country. There are different stakeholders, etc. But we could all somehow work together and um, we need to definitely start doing that more.
0: On to our next story, which is another positive news story, which I think must break some kind of health tech pigeon rule that we can't have um, two positive stories one after the other. But we're going for it today. Um, so we're going to go into a roundup of this week's digital health funding news, and it comes from Jessica Hagen in M- Moby Health News. So the headline raise this week is from Hippocratic AI, and they're a generative AI company developing safety-focused large language models for healthcare. They've raised a whopping $15 million to their seed round, bringing their total raise to $65 million since it launched last May. So phenomenal raise there for Hippocratic AI. And there's actually been a second um, medical generative AI raise this week, they're which is Gen Health AI, who raised $13 million in funding. So we're definitely seeing patterns here. Um, lots of money going into Gen AI for medical startups. Um, do we think this is just investors jumping on the hype bandwagon, or do we think that they've really spotted solid investment here?
2: My personal opinion here is that this is obviously a great news story for these kinds of companies who are doing really cool things. But I feel slightly frustrated by this. Because I don't feel frustrated they've received funding, but I think seeing investors getting excited about it to me does feel like it's jumping on a trend because what we've already identified is that Gen AI and large language models have definitely like loads of potential, but in the future, and there's so much that needs to be done before we get to a place where they're genuinely going to be able to have an impact largely. Due to regulation and knowing that you know we don't we're not sure exactly what data they're being trained on and whether that's clean data or biased data, for example. Coming back to you know the partnership with with AstraZeneca that we've just talked about, and whilst I appreciate that you know these companies and these technologies do need funding in order to be able to get them to the place where they can make an impact, I I kind of feel like. Actually, it's some of the less sexy stuff that would benefit from the funding and could make an impact sooner. And so while it's really exciting, I do kind of feel like it's getting caught up on something that's sparkly and maybe missing the boat where there are other technologies and solutions that that could have that have the regulatory approvals and could have an impact and a bigger impact way sooner. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's cool. It's fun. But what difference is it going to make in the next five years? I'm sceptical.
3: Yeah, I guess I'm with you on this one, Jess. Uh, I think this is an astonishingly large seed round for a company that's only really been public about what it's doing since May. Um, In three months, they've raised $65 million. This announcement comes with the announcement of three new partnerships with hospitals. And yeah, it feels... Almost like I'm retreading last week's episode where me, Bell, and Holly talked about K Health, which is a AI-based chatbot uh, that has just recently signed partnerships with Cedars Sinai. This this story, Hippocratic AI, have just recently signed partnerships with three US hospitals as well, and it's quite interesting because I, I had a look back at some of the the May announcements and back in in Forbes. The, the article about Munj- uh, Munjal Shah, the founder of Hippocratic AI, says he envisions a future where everyone has access to a nutritionist, a genetics counselor, and a health insurance billing specialist at the touch of a button. None of them, however, will be human. It's almost the same piece included at the end of the founder of K Health, who said, "You know, in the future, we can do this without uh, without the doctor." And it, it keeps coming back to the fact that that's so far away as to almost be unthinkable and with sort of this kind of money on the table and these kind of partnerships going we keep hearing the same story but it's it's still going to be assistive um Hippocratic ai cannot make a diagnosis it's all based on data that it has and comparisons with uh medical events uh and i think how far are we from this you know them having the impact that they want to have if we are it, it's a race essentially it's a raced for these companies, but it only currently seems to matter to these companies and to the hospitals where they're active.
1: Yeah, briefly, I totally agree with you guys. Gen AI for healthcare is not Gen AI for any else. Healthcare is so complicated. You know, our idea of curate was you, we curate messy data, but it's regulation, it's approvals, it's medicines, it's this. And for me, it's almost like 50 million is enough. They need like 50 billion to do this kind of thing properly. Like all these companies are raising and like, Maybe that's the VC model. Nine out of 10 will fail in a year and maybe one will succeed and maybe that's fine. But you're right. It's going to, this is a long journey for these guys. And and it's, you know, just because they signed partnership with hospitals doesn't really mean anything, I think, at this stage. And plus, all of this money is going to NVIDIA, right? So all of the Gen AI VC money is going to these big server companies anyway. So it feels a little bit like a racket to me.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll certainly have to watch these guys and maybe do a follow-up episode in six months time and see what they've actually done with the cash. Um, I think it's worth mentioning the final um, raise, which was included in this article. Um, So this is a senior and disability technology startup called K4 Connect, um, and they've got $8.9 million in funding, bringing their total raise to $39 million. And their enterprise platform provides the foundations for senior living operators to undergo digital modernization to improve their efficiency. So I think it's helping old people's homes modernize and digitalize. But when I was reading this article, I think my brain must have been a bit like Friday and frazzled because I read the sentence as, the company's enterprise platform provides operations for living seniors to undergo digital modernization to improve their efficiency. And I was very confused about what that meant and what operations they were carrying out on the seniors to digitally mon- um, modernise them.
1: <laughs> Put chips in their brains, yeah.
3: I just uh, think it's an interesting one, Jess. You say, we'll come back in six months and see what they've done with the cash. Presumably at this rate, they'll have raised their Series A.
2: Probably. Probably on Series B by then. James' dad used to run care homes um, before he retired quite some time ago now. And uh, we often talk about digitization of healthcare and that kind of thing. And every single time without fail, we get on to talking about care homes. He always, always says that if he, if he was running um, care homes now, he would, and they were digital, he would put them back to paper because that is the best thing. And he likes running things by paper, Um, not least because, you know, he was running them quite some time ago, but it always just brings a smile to my face that, um, you know, there are still people out there that think uh, paper, paper is the way forward, particularly in care homes, but I also find it Quite funny that obviously James and I work in health tech, and uh, his dad is very much still for paper and fax machines. So there you go. I,
1: I was going to say I don't think he's the only one. I mean, I <laughs> I'm supposed to be the CEO of a tech company, one day a week I'm in the hospital. It's so frustrating to use these stupid hospital electronic systems. I'd rather just get a bit of paper and write a drug chart mm. as I did when I was a junior doctor. Honestly, sometimes I just think um, that would be a lot easier.
2: Yeah. I can well imagine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, brilliant. Let's um, move on to our next story, which is a super interesting report from the Health Foundation. And this report is titled Health in 2040, Projected Patterns of Illness in England. So they've looked ahead to see how sick or not sick we're all going to be in about 17 years time. So the kind of main highlights of this report are that 9.1 million people in England are projected to be living with major illnesses by 2040, which is 2.5 million more than we're living with major illnesses in 2019, um, which is an increase from um, almost one in six to one in five of the adult population. Most of this is rise as a result of the aging population, and much of the projected growth in illness relates to conditions such as anxiety and depression, chronic pain and diabetes. So yeah, pretty um, shocking figures here. Is that what everyone here would have predicted would be happening in 17 years time? Or does this go against what you
2: might have expected? Firstly, it's frightening that that's only 17 years away, to be honest. I feel like 2040 is 100 years away and it's a real back to the future moment but i think what strikes me really that really stands out there is we often hear about the physical physical conditions and particularly diabetes and those kinds of things being on the rise but what really stood out there is what you mentioned about mental health conditions and those contributing to this massive rise in um the number of people living with long term conditions and how we also now consider you know mental health alongside the physical health and and that kind of thing but I guess for me, the uh, it's not super shocking, but my question is, why? Why Why is it happening? And I'm sure the report will delve into that, but I have this kind of debate in my head around, I guess, mental health and the ri- rise of mental health conditions. I think there's obviously something about the fact that there's less stigma now. We're talking about it, and therefore more diagnosed. But what kinds of environments are we living in that are causing people to be experiencing or so many more people to be experiencing these mental health conditions and poor mental health. And I don't feel like that's discussed and addressed a lot because we, we know and understand why, for example, there are more people who are likely to be living with diabetes because we're living more sedentary lifestyles, there's more access to cheap, ultra-satiating, palatable food that is not good for our bodies. But why are we seeing such an increase in the number of people experiencing these kind of mental health conditions. It's a question I wrestle with all the time.
1: I think that's a really important question. even From a curate point of view, you know, we're a hybrid company. So we only have, I suppose, people have to come in once a month for an office day. Some people come in every day. Some people only come once a month. And we've got a couple of young people who work for us. I say young, I'm not that old, but I feel old. Um, who, out of university, have been working for us for over a year and they've never experienced... The kind of hustle of an office and going and meeting people and I think you know that's great but on the one hand that might be really hard you know as we live these separate lives on screens Um, and you know that has to be I I think that 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 is a fact not the only factor but it's got to be somehow part of the story.
2: Yeah I think that's interesting and I definitely think that employers you know where they're thinking about the way that they structure their organizations and their culture particularly where you have remote organizations or it's hybrid and, you know, and even, you know, in the office, there are definitely considerations for the positives and negatives of however you you structure your kind of work culture or office culture, I suppose, and the impact of that. And even, you know, as I look across the Swomex team, there's so many different people who have different preferred ways of working and you know, Jess is a great example of someone who loves being in an office. She loves being around people. Um, and we've hopefully found ways to make that work. Whereas, you know, there's other people in our team who love just being in their office at home and not having to experience that hustle and bustle, but still being able to tap into our own internal hustle and bustle in a virtual way. And it's really hard to juggle that, but I do think that there is something to be said for missing out particularly for young people at the beginning of their career on just learning from being around people and not just necessarily like career skills it's social skills and just I guess people being around you that I don't know what I don't know there's an easy no
1: there isn't I think it's you're right it's just hanging out it's just chatting to people it's not even about work it's just it's not even about sometimes going for a beer or a coffee it's just being around and chatting about life stuff which is just easier and personal on the screen but you're right, it's really hard, especially we're a tiny company. It's really hard to set that culture and work out what's best for the company.
2: And I also think ironically, you know, as we talk a lot about health tech and digital, that there is something about, you know, obviously social media and all of those, those new parts of our lives that have not existed before and how that's maybe affecting, you know, people's body image and their social interactions and feeling lonely and that kind of thing, you know, but again... There's so many positives and negatives, it's really difficult to pinpoint it. But I would love to see more research done into that um, to understand and explore it so that we can start tackling it in the same way we, you know, we see more public health initiatives for things like diabetes and and other, you know, comorbidities and similar conditions. Yeah, to tackle that and to tackle the people who are most at risk. And I think that the next step for me would definitely be interrogating that and understanding it more so we can do something about it.
0: Um, One thing which I saw in the conclusion of this report is that um, they mentioned tackling climate change as one of the definitive health challenges of our time. And it seems particularly relevant this week when we've heard a lot about the impact of extreme heat across Europe um, and the impact that's having on people's health in those regions. I think public health emergencies have been declared in some European countries this week. Um, So I was just wondering if anyone had any particular opinions on um, the challenges that they think climate change might um, face to um, public health in the UK, which um typically has experienced less of the impact of climate change to date, but obviously that could change a lot by twenty forty.
1: Just a quick anecdote, we were in Greece for a few days on the holiday last week and it was unbearably hot. Um I reminded my mum and my mum reminded me that I was born in Sri Lanka and I said, Yeah, but this was a lot hotter, trust me. It was really hot. It was horrible. Um yeah, I don't know. I think I think it rained in Cambridge that week, so it was great. I felt happy, but it was too hot. <laughs>
3: It's an interesting one as well, isn't it? Because a lot of the a lot of the time, it's not even necessarily the impact of climate change, but the causes that are sort of causing issues in health. The same things that can cause issues in health will cause changes in climate. Um, I think it was only a couple of years ago that the first death attributed to poor attributed to London emissions um, was ruled by a coroner as having been caused. And obviously, when you know, if you look at Emissions uh, levels of particulates just to, in the air, no matter where you are in Britain. Now we're all over the shop, and I think that's going to be causing some of these health outcomes, some of these challenges. So I think a lot of the the work that we could do as a society to tackle those those issues around climate will uh, will also tackle some of the issues around health. Um, you know, I th- there's probably the kind of it's again that preventative piece versus the how to solve a, the bigger issue. But I think that that's one thing that we've got to be considering and, and health tech can go a certain way uh, on that but i think other types of technology are going to have a role that uh, in in people's health uh, in the next 20-30 years that don't even touch the healthcare system or don't even touch you know the individual
2: yeah it's such a good point isn't it that actually not all of this is in the hands of healthcare as you say so much of emissions is coming from industries <laughs> outside of healthcare, it's in healthcare that we're treating people as a consequence of emissions. And I can remember being at the RCP working on their uh, big report into air quality. Um, And uh, ironically, the road on which the RCP is based is one of the most highly polluted areas in the whole of the country. And there was talk of doing all sorts of uh, interesting campaign stunts. But I think it is fascinating that... We talk so much about what we can do as an industry, but it goes to show much like like climate change and so much of health actually extends so far beyond that um, and the environments that we exist in that everything requires collaboration. it's just finding who are the right and willing, I think most importantly, collaborators in resolving that. but it's not straightforward because also how do you incentivize, for example, car manufacturers to reduce emissions i know that there's lots of policy initiatives and stuff in place they're talking about 2030 with no more um as a target for no more uh fuel cars to be manufactured but yeah how do you how do you bring multiple players together to solve a common problem and make everyone's lives better i don't know the answer to that again another question i wrestle with on a regular basis
3: I suppose there is one good piece of news to come out of this report, which is a lot of this is, as Jess mentioned at the beginning, driven by the aging population. But it's it's about the fact that people are living longer, and not just within old age. That's a that's a key driver. But if you look at some of the stats in the report, and it is a good report, recommend reading the whole thing. Um, just looking at some of the you know, the prevalence of these conditions within different age groups, and the prevalence is based on you know the number of people essentially surviving and living with these conditions for each of these charts. And people are surviving longer when they have these conditions. They may be suffering or living with them, but they're not dying, which is a positive. Obviously, this does have implications for the health system and for society and the labour market, as the report goes into in quite a lot of detail. But I think that's one of the challenges comes out of there being at least a distinct positive, as the report covers
0: If ending on a positive note, Hugh. Okay, well, I think probably worth mentioning that if anyone wants to read any of the articles that we've discussed today, then make sure you look out for the Health Tech Pigeon in your inbox over the weekend. And you'll also find several other stories which we didn't talk about today. Um, And alongside all of those great stories, you'll find some good jobs, other podcast recommendations, um, and also this week, some information on a very cool opportunity to join Myota's pioneering metabolic health research study. Um, So definitely check out the newsletter if you want to find all of those links. And so just leaves me to say thank you so much to all of our guests and thank you for listening.